Okay. Hello and welcome to Sport Professor Podcast, the show for the sports student and fan who wants to learn more about the underpinnings of the sporting world. I'm your professor, Dr. Drew Sikansky, and today we will continue to discuss the intersection of sport and ethics as we tackle the topic of performance enhancements. Beginning with a brief history of PEDs, we will move to discuss the big four leagues and the policies and procedures they have in place to deal with drug use, before finally concluding with a discussion of the ethical issues performance enhancements present in sport. So if you ever wondered when athletes began using PEDs, or why EPO and blood doping are banned, but hyperbolic chambers and altitude training is allowed, then this is the podcast for you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of The Sport Professor Podcast. In our previous podcast entitled Sport Ethics, Gamesmanship versus Cheating, we began to introduce the listener to the topic of ethics as applied within the sports setting. Not only did we define ethics and define sports, but we talked about why studying ethics in the context of sports can be so valuable for individuals, not just in the sporting field, but also in the world at large. And then we moved to have a conversation about one specific ethical question, dealing with what is cheating, what is gamesmanship, and how do they violate the central tenets for what sport is. Today, what I want to do is I want to continue that conversation by tackling a topic that most people would argue is a part of cheating in sport. And that is the topic of performance enhancement. And I want to do that in three specific ways. The first thing I want to do is define performance enhancement and talk about it from a historical perspective. What have we seen athletes do in the past? I then want to move and talk about what we currently see professional leagues doing to try to combat issues of performance enhancement. What are their policies and rules that they have set up? And then finally, I want to move to have a conversation about the effectiveness of those policies and also propose a number of ethical questions that we need to answer based off the policies and practices that are in place. So with all that said, let's begin, as we so often do in these podcasts, by just offering a clear-cut definition of performance enhancement. Now, I want you to remember, we're talking about performance enhancement in large context. I always say when I'm giving lectures to think of this as an umbrella term. It covers a lot of different things. Performance enhancing drugs are one thing that it covers, but it covers more than just that. So performance enhancements are various substances, chemical agents, equipment, or procedures designed to provide an advantage in athletic performance. It's a pretty clear-cut definition, but I want you to note that we're not just talking about various substances and chemical agents or drugs. Those are things that this umbrella covers. We're also talking about equipment that might enhance your performance. We're talking about procedures, and by that, oftentimes we need medical procedures that might enhance your performance. So this idea of performance enhancement is anything that is going to make your performance better. 
And this is a good spot for us here to just remember what the central purpose of sport actually is. Remember, sport is an organized activity that has to be physical where the outcome is not predetermined and the outcome matters. The purpose of a sporting competition then is to determine who is the best at that physical activity. And we know who's the best because whoever's the best should be the winner of the competition. The ethical problem and why we're so concerned with the use of performance enhancements like performance enhancing drugs is if an individual is using something that's making their performance better, then we really don't know who is the better pure athlete on the field. So performance enhancements are contrary to the principles of what athletic sporting competition is all about. It doesn't let us determine who the best individual was on that day. But there's more reasons that we are concerned about performance enhancing in today's society besides just this idea of violating the basic tenets of what sport is. One of the reasons we have become so concerned with it is because it appears to be widespread among all sports. This isn't an issue that just baseball is dealing with. This is an issue that you find everywhere. You can literally find scandals in every single major sport across the world. It extends to Olympic sports and Olympic organizations. We just saw that with Russia and the Olympic teams that they have there. It extends into sports like cycling and baseball and football. I mentioned in our previous podcast that Julian Edelman just got suspended for using performance-enhancing drugs for four games. But we see it in baseball. We see it within every single sport. We see it not only with sports that humans are competing in, we see it in sports that we have animals competing in. Horse racing is a massive sport in across the world in which performance enhancements are an issue. So we care about it so much and we have so many conversations about it today because it appears to affect almost all sports across the world. And we know about that in part because of this increase in media attention that we've had. This is a central tenet that's oftentimes talked about by sport managers. You go back five years, the media coverage was different. You go back 10 years, it was different. 20 years, 30 years, media coverage is continuously changing. But the one thing that has been consistent with sport is that as the years pass, we have more and more media coverage of all sports. We now have everyone that has the ability to be a reporter, to have blogs, to have podcasts, to talk about it, which means more and more people are pulling back the veil on what's happening on and off the field. They're looking for more and more issues. And when you look, you're actually finding more. The whole Russia scandal was found out because an individual was making a documentary for Netflix. And as he just started to pull the veil back a little bit on this idea of performance enhancements, he uncovered a massive cheating scandal that was going on in an entire country. So the increase in tension from the media into sports has led to the issue of performance enhancements becoming more mainstream, becoming a much more part of the conversation. Other things that have affected this and led to it being a much more prominent conversation is the growing financial gains from sports. Just like in media coverage, if you go back to the 1980s, the profitability of owning a professional sports team or being a professional athlete was limited. Fast forward to today, where we now have Forbes coming out, as I mentioned in a previous podcast, with the valuations of the current NBA teams saying that the New York Knicks are valued at over $4 billion. The financial incentive in all forms of sport, whether it's owning a sport, working in sport, or being a professional athlete, has grown so much that it incentivizes individuals who are playing sports to cheat more or to try to cheat more 
to reap those financial gains. And you hear athletes that get caught with performance-enhancing drugs oftentimes talk about that. Oftentimes talk that the risk of being caught was weighed against the financial gain if they weren't. And they made the determination that there was so much money to be gained if they weren't caught that it was worth the risk. And so that growth in potential financial gain has led to this being more and more of a part of our conversation in the modern day. But this isn't a modern day issue. This is something that dates back to the earliest athletic competitions. And we have a three-part series that deals with sports and ancient societies. I urge you to go back and listen to. But if you have listened to that, you'll understand the context of what I'm talking about here a little bit more. So we can go back to the ancient Greeks. They were having a number of competitions. The ancient Greeks were the ones that actually put on the first Olympics. And the use of drugs at that time to try to enhance performance was definitely occurring in these original games because individuals wanted to try to give themselves an advantage on the athletic playing field. And according to Larry Bowers, who's a PhD who studies sport, the origins of the word doping is actually attributed to the Dutch word dupe, which is of opium juice, which was the drug of choice for these individuals. Sally Jenkins adds, quote, the ancient Olympic champions were professionals who competed for huge cash prizes as well as olive wreaths. Most forms of what we would call cheating were perfectly acceptable to them save different types of game fixing. There was evidence that they gorged themselves on meat, not a normal dietary staple for the Greeks, and experimented with herbal medicines in an effort to enhance their performances. The ancient Greek athletes also drank wine potions, used hallucinogens, and ate animal hearts or testicles to try to make their athletic performance better to try to give them an upper hand in the athletic events so that way they would be the ones that were taking home not only the cash prizes but the glory that came with these athletic competitions. Fast forward to the Roman gladiators and the Roman gladiators remember one of their big sporting events were chariot races and in those chariot races the racers would feed their horses substances such as hydromo which was an alcoholic beverage made from honey to try to make their horses run faster. The gladiators themselves would ingest hallucinogens or stimulants oftentimes to try to starve off fatigue and help with injury in hopes of improving their performance while they were fighting to the death. We fast forward now to the 19th century. We have the modern application of drug use in sports beginning, according to Thomas Murray. And what they would do is they would take cocoa leaf, which cocoa leaf is the source of cocaine and other related alkaloids. And they would take that and they would mix it with different wines to create what they called the wine of athletes. And this was used by a number of French cyclists and was also used by a champion lacrosse team to help improve their performance. And the idea was that cocoa and cocaine were popular because they starved off the sense of fatigue and hunger and brought on a prolonged exertion of energy. It gave people a boost in their performance. If we go forward into the 1904 to 1920s, we start to see the use of drugs now in the Olympic Games. In 1904, an Olympic marathon runner named Thomas Hikes was using a mixture of brandy and a stimulant 
in such high doses that it nearly killed him. But these mixtures of heroin and cocaine and caffeine became so widely used by each athlete and by each coach and each team, they developed secret formulas that they thought were the best. This was a common practice until heroin and cocaine became available only by prescription in the 1920s across most of the modern worlds. The use of these substances became such an issue in the sport of track and field that in 1928, the International Association of Athletics Federation, the IAAF, which is the governing body for track and field, they became the first international sporting federation to actually prohibit their athletes from doping and using these drugs. But the IAAF prohibiting their athletes from using drugs didn't stop the issue. And we actually see the issue start to transform not just from Houston sports, but actually go over into warfare. In the 1940s, there's records that the Nazis were testing anabolic steroids on their prisoners, and they were actually even giving it to Hitler himself. They would take testosterones and different analogs of testosterones, and they would give them to German soldiers to try to promote aggressiveness and physical strength. The use of these drugs by Germany in the World War is significant because in the 1950s, they take these drugs that were being tested on prisoners and then given to soldiers to promote aggressive, to starve off things like fatigue, to elevate the, the mood of the soldiers. They take these drugs. We start to see those drugs be used in sport. Particularly, we start to see stimulants like anaphetamines. These drugs have the nicknames of bomba and they were given to italian cyclists and in dutch cyclists and they were used during the long races to help them have more energy so they didn't get tired as easily this problem is further exacerbated in 1958 when dr john ziegler who's considered the godfather of steroids creates an anabolic steroid called Diabol, which is released and actually gets fda approval in the united states so while the doctor was doing it to try to provide individuals with health benefits, we start to see this drug used by individuals in different sports that involve strength, like wrestling and weightlifting. If we fast forward a bit into the 1960s, we start to see the conversation around use of performance-enhancing drugs change drastically as a Dutch cyclist named Nut Jensen dies at the Summer Olympics while he's competing in a team trial race. He collapsed, he fractured his skull, and it was initially thought that it was just caused by high temperatures, but when they do an autopsy and actually reveals trace amounts of anaphetamine in his body. In that same time frame, a British cyclist named Tommy Simpson, who is named the Sports Personality of the Year by the BBC in 1965, he dies during the 13th stage of the Tour de France for, again, consuming excess amounts of anaphetamines and brandy to try to starve off illness that he was contracting and continue to ride while his body was slowly shutting down around him. In 1967, the IOC realizes that we have a massive issue. In reaction to Tommy Simpson's death, the IOC, which is the International Olympic Committee, they establish what's known as the Medical Commission with the goal of trying to fight against doping in sports. The commission is given three guidelines, the first being the protection of the health of the athletes, the second, respect for medical and sport ethics, and the third, the equality for all competing athletes. So this commission that's established in 
1967 realizes that they have a massive problem in these Olympic sports. In 1968, the commission helps the IOC institute its first compulsory doping controls at the Winter Olympics in France. And again at the Summer Olympics in Mexico City the same year. So at that time, the list of banned substances that they had were fairly limited. They only really included narcotics and some stimulants, which were comprised of what was being known to be used at the time. So although the list didn't include anabolic steroids that we had had and known about, this was the first step that was being taken towards having a testing policy to try to, again, protect the health of the athletes, have respect for sport ethics, and make sure the athletic competitions were equal for everyone. In 1972, the Olympic testing is ramped up even more, and we now have the first full-scale testing at the Summer Olympics in Munich, Germany. Of note, there were 2,079 samples taken and analyzed, and only seven of the athletes were actually disqualified from competition. In 1975, we have the IOC starting to expand the list of banned substances, and they now start to include anabolic steroids as part of that list. And we see the first athlete in 1976 that actually fails a test for anabolic steroids. But again, that year, they tested 786 different individuals, and only 11 athletes, or 1%, were actually found to be using a substance. So we still only were able to detect a small number of usage. In 1983, we have the modern-day age of drug testing really start to begin. And it's considered the modern-day age of drug testing because it was the first year where we had a team of scientists who had developed a new method for testing, particularly for steroids go down to two international competitions, the 1983 Pan Am Games in Caracas, Venezuela, and the 1983 World Track and Field Championships. And at the games, they do the drug testing, and they caught a lot of athletes by surprise because they were unaware of this new testing and just how sensitive it was. And a dozen American athletes in various events all of a sudden withdrew from competitions and returned to the U.S. without even being drug tested because they knew that they were going to be testing positive because of the sensitivity of this test. And what happens at this point in 1983 is we start to really see this jockeying between the advancements in cheating technology with performance-enhancing drugs and then the advancements of testing to catch them. But we can see it marked at this stage with the Pan Am Games and these athletes all of a sudden leaving because they're worried about testing positive. The issue of performance-enhancing drugs, though, really came to a head in the American eye in the 1988 Olympics. If you don't remember the 1988 Olympics, if you weren't alive during this time, this is an extremely famous Olympics because this is the one where Ben Johnson, who's a Canadian sprinter, wins the 100-meter and is later stripped of his gold medal for testing positive for an anabolic steroid. Now, ESPN and 30 for 30 made a great documentary about this race. And Johnson claims in that that he had not taken anabolic steroids before that race. But he admits in the documentary that he had been using steroids 
just like everyone else. And it became a big deal because the person who finished second in that race was Carl Lewis, who was an American. And Johnson gets stripped of his gold and Carl Lewis gets awarded it. So the idea of steroid use becomes part of the common conversation of sports in America. The other big thing that happens in 1988 that makes it such a seminal year for performance enhancement in sport is that President Reagan signs the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1988 into law. And this law, in part, outlaws the sale of steroids for non-medical use. So the law makes it illegal for you to do steroids unless a doctor prescribes it to you for a specific medical condition. So now all of a sudden, the use of this performance-enhancing drug becomes illegal throughout the country. Two years later, in 1990, Congress actually toughens its stance even more on anabolic steroids by passing the Anabolic Steroids Control Act, which places steroids as a Schedule three substance, which goes with anamphetamines, metamphetamines, opium, and morphine. So they take even further steps to control and limit the use of this drug. Now, that doesn't stop people from using the drug. It just makes it much, much harder for the athletes to obtain it. So while I recognize that we just provided a snapshot view of the history of the use of performance-enhancing substances in sport, hopefully this conversation has done a couple of things. Hopefully it's highlighted the fact that the use of drugs is not a modern-day conception. It's something that dates back all the way to the earliest forms of sports that we know of. It also highlights the nature of the use of drugs versus our feelings towards them. And it leads us to a very important question. Because we see in our modern day athletes that we are putting more and more barriers in front of them to keep them from doing drugs. Because we truly believe that it hurts the core purpose of what sport is. So why do athletes continue today to use these substances? Even though we have such strong barriers in place, and even though we as a society have deemed it to be wrong. Well, there's a couple of reasons that we know of through interviews and conversations and research as to why they still do this. The major one is the belief that everyone else is doing it. We saw this in the 1990s in baseball. A lot of individuals have come out and talked about their use of steroids during that time and have said, I knew other people were doing it, so I felt that I needed to do it as well just to be competitive. There's this belief that if everyone's doing it, all of a sudden it's not wrong and that if I'm not doing it, I have no way to win. There's also this idea that athletes, especially athletes at the highest level, will do anything it takes to win. In our history, we talk about that a bit, where we point out individuals who are so willing to do what it takes to win that it actually ends up killing them. And I have an argument with people all the time. The only way you get to be an elite athlete and play at the highest level of your sport is if you're willing to sacrifice everything to get there. And part of that sacrifice oftentimes is a sacrifice in your moral and ethical beliefs. It's turning against what you know is right 
and choosing to do wrong because you just want to win that competition, because you want to get up to that highest level. And there's also a fear that people have once they get to that level that if they don't continue to use a substance or continue to use something to enhance their performance, that they might lose their job to someone who is using that substance. And as part of this, people around the athletes put a ton of pressure on them. Sometimes it's been their coaches. Sometimes it's their parents. Sometimes it's their peers. Now, I'm not talking about specific pressure to use a performance-enhancing drug or performance enhancer, but they're putting pressure on them to win. Think about how much we value winning as a society. We talked about this in our previous podcast, and we talked about what might motivate people to actually cheat in an athletic competition. And we said, we value success in our culture at such a high level that people are willing to go around the rules just to have that success. And then as always, there's the financial reward that comes. If I use a drug that makes me perform better, if I use performance enhancer that makes me better at the sport that I'm trying to play, that makes me win more competitions, that means I'm going to be able to get more money from that sport. I'm going to have a financial reward, not only on the field from a contract that might be awarded to me, but also in terms of the press coverage. I'm going to get more commercials. I'm going to get more interviews. I might get more opportunities outside of my sport because I'm seen as a champion. And so the media influence and the financial rewards that we can gain through using performance-enhancing drugs as a means to succeed can help push athletes into making that decision. And then finally, the reason that we see athletes doing it is because they obviously just believe it's going to help their performance. Some have talked about the standpoint that they needed to get back to their normal level of performance because they were recovering from an injury. And they saw the use of that substance as a means to get their performance back to the levels they were before. Some have talked about the fact that they needed to take their, their performance up to a new level that they knew that they could not obtain themselves. And so they believed that that drug could help. So hopefully now you understand why current day athletes are choosing to take some of these illegal substances to try to enhance their performance. From a management and business side, as a league, I need to recognize that and then I need to create policies and procedures to have in place to try to protect the sanctity of the sport. We're trying to make sure that in the athletic competition, the best natural athlete is winning. That is what the leagues are all trying to protect. Whether it's baseball trying to make sure that the best baseball team is winning or football trying to make sure the best football team is winning, we are trying to assure that the victor on the field is based on athletic ability, not based on other factors like cheating that we've talked about previously or the use of performance-enhancing drugs. So let's start with Major League Baseball. So just a quick history on Major League Baseball and their interactions with different drug testing policies. So in 2002, Major League Baseball and the Players Union, as they were negotiating a new collective bargaining agreement, were going back and forth over the idea of testing for the use of performance-enhancing drugs in sports. Now, the Players Union did not want their athletes tested. Why? Because the players union is looking out for the players. What do the players want? They want to be able to get as much money as possible, whether that's through use of drugs like we just talked about or natural performance, but they just want to try to make sure that they're individually each getting the most money possible. Well, 
Major League Baseball is trying to protect the sanctity of the game that we just talked about. They're trying to make sure that the game isn't ruined. They want to make sure that their owners are getting the most money possible. And they're worried that if there's a large number of people who are cheating through use of performance-enhancing drugs, that that could deter fans from watching the game, which means it could lose the league and lose these owners millions and billions of dollars. So as they're negotiating this, each from their own standpoint, they announce that they reach an agreement to something that is called the Joint Drug Prevention and Treatment Program. They added this in as an addendum basically at the last possible minute. And as part of this deal, the new policy called for something called survey testing in 2003. And the idea with that was they wanted to gauge whether the use of steroids among players was a problem or not. So they decided that they were going to test anonymously a number of players just to see how many were actually using performance enhancing drugs particularly how many were using steroids. But they also said that because it's anonymous, there would be no punishment if you tested positive. Fast forward to 2003, after the random anonymous sampling was done. Of the 1,438 tests that were given, between 5 and 7% were announced to be positive. That number triggered in a provision from the collecting bargaining agreement the previous year, which meant that starting in 2004, individuals would be tested and that if they tested positive, they would have on first test to go into counseling. And then on a second offense, they would have to serve a 15 day suspension. So they enact this policy and all of a sudden the use of performance enhancing drugs particularly anabolic steroids, is deemed illegal. So obviously, these penalties were pretty soft at first. And this was met with a lot of negative press from the media. They not only attacked the owners, but they also attacked the players. And a lot of the players started to get upset about this too. So in 2005, Major League Baseball and the union agreed to strengthen the drug program by making the punishment more punitive. They agreed that on the first time testing positive, you now got a 10-game suspension. And then on the second test positive, you got a 30. And on a third test, you got 60. And then after the fourth test, you were out one whole year. So they start to get a little bit more aggressive in their policies. And this continues. They continue to strengthen the policies more and more because as they start to outlaw it more, more players start to get more vocal about wanting this to be out of the game. More players who aren't using start to say it is not fair for other people who are test who are using drugs to be able to make more money than I am because I refuse to do it. So let's look at what the policy is now. It's the strongest it's ever been. And there's really, there's three things to look at within all of these policies within professional sports. The first thing is what they're testing for. The second thing is when do they test? And the third is what the punishment is for positive tests. So Major League Baseball, what are they testing for? The first thing they're testing for are performance enhancing drugs. 
There's a list of 72 banned substances that are in the CBA that you can go look up and read, but they include things like steroids, HGH, EPO, or erythropoietin. And they're also testing for stimulants. There's 56 different stimulants. Now, the stimulants that they're testing for are things like anaphetamines, which we talked about in the history as being early form of performance enhancing that was used. It was also very common in baseball in the 70s. But notice what they're not testing for. They're not testing for street drugs, which means they're not testing for things like cocaine. They're not testing for LSD, marijuana, opiates, ecstasy, PCP. They are not testing in baseball for any of those substances. Now, the irony is in minor league baseball, they do test for those substances. In major league baseball, they do not. All they care about in major league baseball are performance enhancers and stimulants. So the next question, when do they test? So the testing takes part in three different stages. We have unannounced testing that takes place during spring training. We have random testing during the season and random testing in the postseason. And then we have what happens in the offseason. So let's start with the testing that's done in season. During the course of the season, the collective bargaining statement states that the league can only collect 3,000 200 urine specimens a year. That's it. They cannot collect one more sample past that number. Once they've collected that many urine samples, they cannot collect any more. Now, baseball, as I said, has continuously made their policy stronger and stronger. So in recent years, they added in that not only do they get to collect 3,200 urine specimens, but they also get to collect 260 blood specimens from a random group of players over the course of the year at an unannounced time. The only thing that they're testing for, though, in these blood specimens is HGH. That's the only thing. And the reason that is, is because HGH can only be detected through a blood sample. So that's what happens during season. Let's go to the offseason. The CBA says that the league can collect only 350 urine specimens during the offseason. And they collect them at unannounced times, so you don't know when the testing's coming. But again, as soon as they have 350, they cannot collect one more. However, offseason urine specimen collection shall be tested only for the per- presence of performance-enhancing drugs and not for stimulants. That's an important side point. And also in the offseason, the league is allowed, according to the CBA, to collect 140 blood specimens at an unannounced time. So we now know what they test for, when they test for it. Let's talk about the last of the three. What is the penalty for testing positive? Major League Baseball, most people don't know this, actually have two different sets of punishments. They have one set of punishment if you test positive for a stimulant, and they have one set of punishments if you test positive for a PED. If you test positive for a PED, the first time you test positive, you serve an 80-game suspension. 80 games have to be during the regular season or the postseason. Spring training games, extended spring training games don't count in those 80 games. So first positive test, 80 game suspension. Second positive test, you miss a whole year. It's 162 game suspension. If let's say you test positive in the middle of the season, then it means you miss the remainder of that season. If your team makes the postseason, postseason games do count towards the 162. And then you would miss games in the following season as well until that penalty has been fully 
The third time you test positive for a PED, you have a lifetime ban from, from the sport. Now, there are means that you can go to to apply to get reinstated after two years, but the general rule is that there's a lifetime ban for the third time. Now, and another interesting thing that Major League Baseball does is if you test positive for a performance-enhancing drug, not only do you have to serve that 80-game suspension on your first time, you also miss the postseason games if your team were to make it. So let's say there's a scenario where I test positive on the first day of the season, I then miss the next 80 games, but I come back for the 82nd game. I play the remainder of the 162 games for my team. Let's say we make the postseason. The What the rules state is I have to miss the entire postseason play. So that's a different thing that Major League Baseball has. Now, they also have a different set of punishments for stimulants. The first time I test positive for a stimulant, nothing happens. Let's say I'm taking uh, amphetamines. If I test positive for that, there is no punishment for that first positive test. However, on the second positive test, I miss 50 games. The third positive test, I miss 100 games. And the fourth positive test, I have a lifetime banned, which again, after two years, I can apply to be reinstated. So baseball has the strictest testing policy in place, in part because of the historic issues that they had in the 90s and the amount of media coverage that that got. The NFL's policy is very, very different. So let's start again with the NFL by talking about what does the NFL test for. They have a list in their CBA that's five pages long for different performance-enhancing substances they test for. This includes things like anabolic steroids, HGH, diuretics, and other masking agents. This includes ephedrine and other various stimulants. It includes dietary supplements that contain prohibited substances, etc., Football, unlike baseball, does test for substance abuse, meaning they do test for substances like cocaine, THC, they test for opioids and opiates. They also, as a side note, do test for alcohol, but you have to be in the program already for that to happen. So let's go to the second thing with football. When do they get tested? There is what they call a pre-employment test in the NFL. This just means that before you are able to join the league, players must get tested. Oftentimes this occurs at the combine and there's stories every year that comes out that a player or two tested positive normally for marijuana at the combine, which is stupid because they should know or their agents should be telling them that you have to get tested entering into the league. So that's the first time that they get tested. There's also annual tests that are done. All players are tested for prohibitive substances at least once per league year. Again, this is different than baseball. Remember, baseball just conducts 3,200 random tests. That means you could be tested 100 times in baseball and I could not be tested at all. In football, every player is tested at least once. And that testing occurs at training camp or whenever the player reports as part of their preseason physical. Now, after that initial test that is done at the beginning of every season or the beginning of the time that each player reports to play, each week during the regular season, 10 players on every team are tested. This is done uh, by means of a computer program. It's independently administered outside of the control of the league. But every game, 
10 players are tested. This is both preseason games, regular season games, and postseason games. So there is a 20% chance every game that I could be tested. Now, the only other time players can be tested is in the offseason. And periodically in the offseason, players will be selected by that independent committee to be tested. There is one caveat because it does seem like there's a lot of testing here. No player can be tested more than six times. So if I'm selected at random by this independent administration for the first six games of the year then my testing is over and I can't be tested again until the following preseason when I report. So we know what they test for. We know when they test for it. Now let's get to the penalties if you test positive. In the NFL, the first time you test positive, you serve a four-game suspension. Now, it's important to point out that it's the first time you test positive for a performance-enhancing drug. You could also test positive for a masking agent. A masking agent would be something that I take to try to mask the the performance enhancer that I'm taking. The masking agent, if you test positive for that, it's only a two-game suspension. The second positive test is a 10-game suspension. And the third positive test is a minimum of two seasons of being suspended. Now, the way they label that is as an indefinite suspension from the game. But again, just like in baseball, after two years, I can petition the league to reinstate me into it. So we're starting to see some similarities and differences between these different policies. Let's move on to the NBA. The NBA is interesting for a couple of different reasons, but let's start there with what they're testing for. They test for substance abuse, so cocaine, marijuana, opiates, heroin, all of that stuff, the same type of things that the NFL is testing for that Major League Baseball doesn't. They test for performance enhancers, so your steroids, your amphetamines. But what's interesting is not what they're testing for, but when they do the testing. So during the each NBA season, the NBA will conduct no more than 1,525 total tests. So just like baseball, they have a limit in the number of tests they can do. During the offseason, the NBA will conduct no more than 600 tests. The schedule for the testing and the collection is set again at random by a third-party organizer that's outside the control of the NBA or the players' union. They are only using urine for testing in the NBA. They can be tested at any time, but they can be tested no more than four times a season and no more than two times per offseason. Why this is interesting is because the NBA season is pretty long. So what happens oftentimes in the NBA is after you're done with four tests, I know I cannot be tested the rest of the season, which means I can do any performance enhancers I want, or what's more often the case, I can do any type of substances I want. I can smoke marijuana, and I don't have to worry about testing positive because they can't test me. So that's an interesting caveat to the testing policy. Let's get to the the penalties. If a player tests positive in their first year, They're dismissed for an entire year. So the league really wants those first-year players to be good stewards of the game. So they have this special penalty put in place that other leagues don't have. Now, all other times, a first positive test is a 20-game suspension. The second positive test is a 45-game suspension. The third positive test, just like in these other leagues, is being banned from the NBA for no less than two years. After two years, you can again apply for reinstatement. So that seems to be a commonality between these leagues. Another interesting thing about the NBA is that they have a different policy 
for penalties for marijuana specifically. The first time you test positive, all you have to do is enter in to what they call the marijuana program. Now, the marijuana program means you can actually be tested more often. You have to go through a series of educational classes about, the, about marijuana and why it's bad, etc. The second time you test positive for marijuana, you're only fined $25,000. It's not until the third violation that you're actually suspended from play. And at that point, you're only suspended for five games. So basketball treats marijuana very differently than all the other leagues. And finally, the last league that I want to hit on here is the NHL. And the only reason I bring them up, I normally don't include them as a part of my conversation in a lot of professional sports because I don't have the knowledge base of them. But finding this information is fairly easy. You go and you look up the collective bargaining agreement. All you have to do is know kind of what you're looking at and how to interpret it, and you can get this information. So I did the same thing for the NHL. I went and I pulled up their collective bargaining agreement, which is readily available online, just like all these other leagues. And I could not find what they're actually testing for. The only thing that I could discern from reading their agreement was that they are testing for steroids and a few other drugs as noted by the World Anti-Doping Agency. They just say that they're following their policies without having a specific list, which is an interesting thing that they don't have, like these other leagues, a set list of all the drugs they're testing for. From what I can discern, it appears that there are no testing for narcotics, so they're not testing for cocaine or marijuana, just like Major League Baseball is not, but they're also not testing, from what I can tell, for things like amphetamines. So that's an interesting subcomponent to what the NHL's policy is. So when do they do the testing? There is no notice of the testing, just like the other leagues don't give them notice. They do a team-wide testing at some point during training camp. And then each team will be selected as a whole for a team-wide test with no notice one time during the regular season. And then individual players can be randomly selected for with no notice given at various times during the regular season and the playoffs, and they can be randomly selected during the offseason. But again, I had issues being able to find exactly when they could give it, how many times you could be selected, and what those total numbers are. What I could find, though, were those the last thing we've been talking about with each of these leagues, which is the penalties. First offense for PEDs in the NHL is a 20-game suspension. The second offense is a 60-game suspension. And the third, just like every other league, is a permanent suspension, which means at, you are suspended for two years, and then after two years, you can apply for reinstatement. So the interesting thing is not that to memorize what those things are or to understand each of those in depth, but to look at what each of these leagues is doing to try to combat the issue and the incentive of these players to cheat through use of performance-enhancing drugs. But each of them has different flaws in it. For example, the leagues that are only using urine tests and not blood testing means that they can't actually test for all the substances because HGH and other substances can only be detected through blood tests. So only the NFL and Major League Baseball can truly detect certain substances. Whereas in a sport like basketball, I could be doing HGH and they would have no ability to tell. So we could have everyone in the NBA doing HGH, but we have no way to to actually discern it. Another problem that we have that I pointed out with Major League Baseball and with the NHL is that they're not testing for stimulants. They're not testing for street drugs. They're not testing for marijuana, for cocaine, for other drugs like that. So that's a problem. Another problem that we see with all of this 
is the flaws in the test themselves. There's been a continual competition over time, as we said, between those individuals that are making performance-enhancing drugs and those individuals that are creating a means to test for performance-enhancing drugs. There is more money to be made in designing a drug that cannot be tested for than there is in designing the test for drugs. So we have this constant battle between these two sectors where designer steroids or designer drugs are always going to be a little bit in front of the testing. So that means why we say that we're testing for performance enhancing drugs, we're really only testing for a very small sector of them. And so we can't really assure everyone 100% that the outcome that is happening on the field is not being enhanced without the use of some type of substance. Maybe even a bigger issue. It's not just the flaws in the test or the fact that some leagues aren't even testing for certain substances. The bigger issue is how do we even go about defining what a performance enhancer is? And that's where I want to spend the last bit of our podcast today. Because if you go back to that initial definition of performance enhancement that I offered, it was performance enhancements are various substances, chemical agents, equipment, or procedures designed to provide an advantage in athletic performance. We've spent the bulk of this conversation so far talking about drugs that can lead to a performance being enhanced. That's how most people think about performance enhancement. But that's an incomplete view because while most people think of something like anabolic steroids as being a drug and therefore drugs being performance enhancers, that's not the full story. Let me help illustrate this to you by telling you a little bit about my playing career when I was in college. I was a college athlete and I've talked about this in depth in other podcasts, but I played soccer and I was a goalie. In my last year of playing soccer at Ohio State, a ball was served into the box and I went up to get it and a player from the other team ducked his head and undercut my legs, causing me to flip upside down and land on my left shoulder really hard. It actually ended up separating my shoulder, ended up tearing my rotator cuff, tearing my labrum and being in a lot of pain. But being that it was my last season, I wanted to try to play through it. And I continued playing in that game, but soon it became evident that I couldn't move the way that I normally could, so I was taken out. And after the game, I started to go through and get different types of treatment. I was getting ice, and I was getting stem. And I tried to go out the next day and practice. I noticed that every time I caught a ball, my shoulder would pop in and out, and that there was a sharp pain. And I tried to play through it for a game, but after a short time in that game and making one save, I had to take myself out because of my lack of mobility in the shoulder. And I met with team doctors after that. And we sat down and we talked. And I said, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to play. Can we just maybe give me a shot of cortisone, a drug that's designed as an anti-inflammatory to help me be able to overcome the swelling and the pain? And the doctor said, yes. And we actually agreed to do something even a little bit more extreme. That before the game, I would go in and see him And he would shoot a numbing medication that would block the nerves in my shoulders from feeling anything. And what that allowed me to do was for the two hours of the game, go out and play without feeling pain, without limitations. The downfall of that was afterwards, it became extremely painful because I had just been doing a lot of things with my shoulder that the pain should have inhibited me to do and making it worse. But I was taking a substance, I was taking this medicine 
in a form of a shot directly into my shoulder to enhance my performance. Without that shot, if I would have gone out and played, I would not have been as good. My performance would have been very limited. So I took a drug to help me perform better. That's the definition of performance enhancement. But people don't frown on that. It was fine. I wasn't breaking any rules in doing it. There was nothing that said I couldn't take that substance. So why do we say that performance-enhancing drugs are only things like anabolic steroids? Why don't we include something like that medication that I was taking in my shoulder? Or include something like cortisol? Or include other anti-inflammatories? Because they are doing the exact same thing. They are making you perform above what your physical ability is on that day. And the question becomes even more complicated because where do we even draw the line from that? What about if you are a person that suffers from awful allergies? In the springtime, my allergies are awful. Luckily, for soccer, it's played in the fall, so I don't have to worry about it. But I have awful allergies in the springtime. I'm sneezing at all times. My eyes are watery. I take Claritin for that. Well, why is something like Claritin not a performance enhancer? Because if I'm running around and sneezing, my performance on that day is going to be impaired. Taking Claritin is taking a substance, a chemical, that I'm taking on purpose to make me perform better. So the definition of what is okay and ethical and what's not okay and unethical isn't actually clear-cut, as most people say, because we allow certain drugs, and then we don't allow other drugs. And there's really no reason why we allow one over the other. Most people would say that in taking a shot to my shoulder like I was or in taking allergy medicine, all the individual's trying to do is get their body to what their natural state is or their natural level. But remember, the core purpose of sport is to establish who is the better athlete on that day. On that day means there's a number of things to take into consideration around me, including my physical abilities. We can go down other lines of of talk with this about what should be and shouldn't be considered performance enhancement as well. Something like EPO is a commonly one that we use. EPO is also known as erythropoietin, as we said. It's a form of what we consider a blood doping. It increases your red blood cells' ability in your body to take in amounts of oxygen. So if you take EPO... I can actually process more oxygen. This is great for endurance sports. It's great really for any type of sport where you're involved in running and physical activity. EPO is a banned substance because it's seen as a way to increase performance. But what about doing something like blood doping, which establishes the same thing? Blood doping is inserting more blood into my body as a means to increase the amount of red blood cells that I have. By increasing the red blood cells, I'm actually having the exact same effect that EPO is having. A lot of people, when we have this conversation, you throw out that idea, they say, well, that that should be cheating as well. That is a performance enhancer as well because you're putting something foreign into your body, which makes sense. But what if I just take my own blood out of my body, store it, and then the day of a race, put that blood back in? It's not foreign blood. It's now my blood. Is that the use of a performance enhancer? Most people, again, would say, yes, it is because you're still doing that. But what about sleeping in a hyperbaric chamber because a hyperbaric chamber is designed to do the exact same thing it is a way to increase the amount of red blood cells that are in my body so that they are better at taking in oxygen which then fuels me to perform better it is enhancing my performance that is something most people actually don't have a problem with but the outcome is the exact same it's still something that i am doing to increase my performance I am now no longer performing at my natural state. I'm now performing at an enhanced state because of this. 
And Olympic sports or, or sports that inquire, require endurance, we oftentimes mimic all of this by going and training at altitude. In the United States, we go and we train in Colorado. Why? Because training at altitude forces my body to create more red blood cells, which has the same effect as EPO, as blood doping and hyperbaric chambers. So the ethical question becomes, where do we draw the line? What actually counts as performance enhancement? The drug conversation, most people start thinking that drugs should be outlawed, and then it becomes more complicated when we start throwing examples like I did with my personal experience in my shoulder. But it gets even more complicated because remember that definition says not just substances that we're taking from outside our body, but also treatments that we're undergoing. So what about a medical treatment? What about having surgery like Tommy John? In addition to blowing out my shoulder uh, the year before, I actually blew out my elbow as well, and I had to have Tommy John surgery. But that Tommy John surgery is actually enhancing my performance because if there was no surgery that was Tommy John surgery, if there was no ACL reconstructions or any other type of surgeries, then you'd be forced to play physically at whatever your ability level was, including the injuries that you might have. So surgeries are actually improving your performance. So why should that be allowed, but taking anabolic steroids shouldn't be allowed? And now when we start to go down the rabbit hole of medical treatments, it becomes really hard because what about something like platelet-rich plasma or PRP? PRP is becoming a very sought-after treatment. We hear a lot of athletes doing this. Maybe the one that got the most press was when Kobe Bryant went over to Germany to get this in his knees in his last couple of years. And what PRP does, it spins out that plasma and it takes those platelets that come from that plasma and they reintroduce it into your body. And those platelets and that plasma contain hundreds of different proteins, such as growth factors. You know what else is a growth factor? HGH is a growth factor. But this plasma contains growth factors that help you heal from injuries. So a lot of athletes are going and getting PRP done to help them heal from injuries. That is a similar thing as using human growth hormone to heal from an injury. But we allow PRP. We say that that is not a form of performance enhancement where we classify something else like HGH as a form. We could go on and on with this. We could talk about specialty diets. Michael Phelps, very famously, when he was training for the Olympics and to win all those gold medals, he was on a 12,000 calorie a day diet. That's insane. Most people are probably eating between 1,500 and 2,000 calories a day. He was eating six times that. Most people would not even consider that or think about that as performance enhancement. But what if he just ate 2,000 calories? He literally could not be able to perform as well. He has to eat that many calories to perform at that level. In swimming, you can go down a rabbit hole even more because we can talk about specialized equipment that you can use in swimming to help you swim faster. This went back in the 2008 Beijing Olympics. There were 130 world records broken since the end of 2009 because of a special rate suit called the LRZ Racer. This was a race suit that cost $550. And what this race suit allowed you to do, it allowed you to excel through the water at a faster pace because it repelled water and reduced your drag. So that's a piece of equipment that you are wearing that's making your performance better. And the point I'm trying to drive home with all this is not that some things are right and some things are wrong, but it's that we should have a wider conversation 
around performance enhancement outside of just this idea of taking illegal substances or substances deemed illegal by an organization or by a national body that oversees a sport. Because we can do things outside of just drugs that have the same effect. So we need to extend our conversation. But there's other ethical issues and questions that we need to be asking and diving into as well. The first one's a very simple one. Are performance-enhancing drugs or performance enhancers really hurting sports or are they even really hurting the athlete? And then what role should we as sport managers, as people overseeing sports and running sport, what role should we have in dictating what should be allowed and shouldn't be allowed? Ethically, we have to take into consideration what is right and what is wrong, and not just what is right or wrong in this instance, but what is the long-term effect of that on our society. Because we have this idea of creeping professionalism, this idea that if we see our pro athletes doing it, even if it's only entertainment and we we classify it as that, soon that's going to leak down and now it's going to affect our youth. And our youth might not be able to have the capacity to make the decisions or understand the long-term effects of what they're doing. And so we have to take an active understanding that that is also occurring. So if it's okay to do it at the pros, then is it okay to do it at the college level? And if it's okay to do it at the college level, then what if that creeps down into the high school level? And then if high school athletes start doing it, what if that creeps down even more into the lower levels? What if people start to see the only way to make it at, from a kid to a professional athlete is to use some form of performance enhancer? What's the long-term consequences of that? And what role should we have as sport managers or as people in society at large of protecting athletes from themselves? Because so often we hear in the NFL, we hear these athletes that are banging their heads, that are probably getting concussions, that are having mental problems, that they would do it again. What role should we have in dictating what they can and cannot do to their body? And at what age should we be able to dictate that? So in the end... While we don't have answers to these questions, it highlights the fact of what we've already said in previous podcasts. Ethics is a conversation. It's a discussion that's to be had. What's right or wrong is something that needs to be determined by society. But too often, I feel that the conversations around performance enhancement are narrow-sided. We focus just on this use of performance-enhancing drugs without having a conversation about the larger context. And I hope you understand that after listening to this podcast. I hope you've also gained a little bit of understanding about just how wide performance enhancing actually is. Through understanding some of the historical aspects of the use of performance enhancing substances over time, dating all the way back to the ancient Olympics into modern day, through seeing what professional leagues are doing to try to curb the use of performance enhancing drugs, through seeing what motivates these individual athletes to use substances even if they are banned by law as we talked about or by the league but hopefully understanding in the end it's not on just the athlete or just these leagues but it's on us as a society as a whole to have these type of conversations to ask these types of questions so we can come to an understanding of what we think is right and what we think is wrong and set the standard for society as a whole If you've liked this podcast on performance enhancement in sport or the topic of ethics, please feel free to reach out and let us know. Give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify and follow us on Instagram at The Sport Professor, where we have posts every week that deal with 
our podcast topics, and we can interact with you as well. But until next time, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Sport Professor Podcast.